0: So stay with us. Welcome to the Arts Report, your weekly arts and culture fix here on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM, as well as online at CITR.ca. That's right, we're streaming as we speak. We're in a stream floating down the internet river right now, so you can catch us there as well. I'm your host, Adam Janusz. And on today's Arts Report, we've got uh, lots of books. We've got two new books. It seems to be Spring Book Fever. Time right now. There's a lot of uh, books, uh, book launches, book releases happening right now, and so we'll tell you about two of them. They're called A Description of a Blazing World, that's one work of fiction, and the other one is called Year. Of broken glass, and uh, we'll have an interview on that as well as uh, we'll tell you about the lawyer show, and that's a unique little fundraiser. Sorry, not little. I shouldn't I shouldn't belittle it. It's a uh, it's a huge and wonderful and amazing fundraiser uh, for Touchstone Theater and uh, Carousel Theater. That'll be at uh, the Waterfront uh, Theater very soon. So we'll get a scoop preview of that. We'll get two scoops of that, and uh, uh, we'll tell you about a. Dance Show called Burn and Dodge, where they used Skype. Where they're using the powers of Skype to do a piece in three cities: Vancouver, Winnipeg, and New York City. And uh, they're going to be in all three of those cities. They're going to tour all three cities, but in each in each city. So in the Vancouver show that's coming next week uh, on May 5th, I believe it is, they will have performers from each city uh, in the same place, magically, through the powers of the internet. So, we'll find out how that works and uh, what that will be about uh, later in the show. So, uh, lots, lots to cover. Now, before we get into the show, uh, a little bit of news, news and events and happenings for you. Of course, there's an election going on in Canada that's coming up very soon, on May 2nd, which is uh, Monday, so only days left in the election, and we got some good news in that the early voting um, round the early round of voting, what do you call it? Um, bah, 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 advanced polls. The advanced polls uh, have been surprisingly big. That is to say, a lot of people have been voting in, in the advanced polls. Now, some say that it's because it was a long weekend. It was the Easter weekend, so people who work had a chance to go vote because it was a holiday, but people are also saying that it's thanks to all the uh, attention this election has been getting through uh, social media. And uh, that must be thanks in part to groups like Shitharperdid.com who are putting up a slew of YouTube videos and uh, doing all kinds of events to promote voting, in this case uh, voting against a certain party and a certain uh, candidate, but nevertheless getting uh, attention for uh, voting into uh, the into the public sphere, or I guess into young people's minds. Let's put it that way. Getting uh, the election into young people's minds, and it seems to be working. So kudos to the folks that shit Harper did, and uh, VoteMob.ca as well uh, is getting some credit uh, for stirring people up and getting people excited uh, about this election. So so kudos to all of them, and uh, we here encourage you to vote as well on May second and in any advance polls that are still going on. Uh, get out there, get out there and vote. And uh, and be heard, because uh, last election was the lowest turnout in Canadian history, so perhaps that's a factor too, is a bit of embarrassment on the part of Canadians who are saying, you know what, let's not repeat that, let's not get worse this year. Um, so, that's, so that's very exciting. What's other news? Other news is that uh, I saw tape over the weekend. This is a play that happened at the Waldorf Hotel. Yes, that's right, you heard right. Not the Waldorf Theatre, but the Waldorf Hotel. Uh, went up to a little tiny little room that uh you know had the typical trimmings of a hotel room a bed uh, a night table a tv a bathroom and in this space was crammed 18 seats and um so uh myself and 17 of my closest strangers sat shoulder to shoulder and we watched a play take place in in that tiny room. Three people <laughs> three actors in a very 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 small hotel room and you know what it was delightful. It, um, it was a very intelligent script executed uh, very smartly and competently by the three actors. Uh, this was this was a show that was at the Fringe in 2009 so it, it's, it's getting a remount so obviously you know they got some experience under their belts they know what they're doing and um, they they definitely upped their game, from what I hear, from people who have seen both versions. Um, so the news, in this case, the news uh, is not that I went to see a show. That's not very newsworthy. The, the news is that the play is having an extended run. So it should have wrapped up last Sunday, but will in fact go on for another week. So you still have a chance to see this awesome show that happens in real time inside a hotel room uh, at the Waldorf. That's happening. You can get more information on that at tape the play.ca tape the play.ca and uh if you want to hear the interview that we did you can go to uh a lot of places you can go to our facebook page or our youtube channel just go to citr.ca right now and there'll be links to all of those places our podcast and you can get the uh, the interview with marissa smith who is in the show as well as um as well as a, a director about town. She didn't direct this show, but, uh, but she's in it, and she's uh, very talented. So, yeah, so check that out. All right, well, uh, that's, enough, uh, that's enough yapping from me. I think we should get on with the show. So um, let's see, what do we have first? Aha! A novel called The Year of Broken Glass follows a struggling crab fisherman named Ferris Wickbon On a journey across the Pacific Ocean, surviving natural disasters in the process and trying to balance a double life, supporting two families in different cities. It all begins with the discovery of an antique glass fishing float, an idea that came to writer and fisherman Joe Denham after considering his own clumsy habit of breaking glass. But it would be years before the initial inspiration was converted into an entire novel. So we talked about the challenges of completing a work of fiction, but first, with a book about being a fisherman in coastal BC and earthquakes on the Pacific Rim, I got the impression that this book is very deliberately rooted in the now. It's meant to feel very contemporary
1: yeah i had to counterbalance the the the, see the the stuff that i came up with four or five years ago when i got the big burst of inspiration that i mentioned Mm -hmm. that was all not that stuff that was all just this this fantastical tale about a a a sinking continent, th- you know, tens of thousands of years ago, and all that kind of stuff. And I got that idea, and then I actually went and researched the whole concept of a continent sinking in the in the uh, Pacific Ocean. And I, on the internet, and I glommed onto James Churchward, who's actually a real writer, turn of the century, uh, and a guy who had this whole idea of this continent called Mu that sank twenty thousand years ago in the middle of the uh, Pacific. It's also referred to as Lemuria by other people, mm-hmm. and so. I had all those ideas and that's all very ridiculous that stuff right <laughs> so I I felt really compelled to also ground the day-to-day in really re- realistic and visceral kind of stuff and and contemporary politics and events and all that kind of stuff and you know it's it's a it's a bizarre and and it's it's awful to say fortunate but not fortunate but um uh sort of very canny sort of uh um uh, coincidence that yeah. when I was finishing the first draft of this book is when the the um, earthquake and the Haitian earthquake happened. Yeah, And since then, there's been a whole bunch of stuff happening throughout yeah, the Pacific Rim, which is, is exactly what's going on in the book. Yeah. Um, so that actually lends itself to grounding itself even more into the contemporary here and now, only because that's what's been happening in the time frame that the book's supposed to be set, but was not happening when I was writing the book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, all that came t- together, I mean, on the backs of tens of thousands of people, you know, having a horrible time. Yeah, lives, uh, of but, course,
0: you're not you're not happy that no, those things happened, but no, it's but it, interesting. But,
1: but that coupled, that those sort of events in the last year or two, coupled with, with my efforts to, to really bring a lot of the contemporary stuff in with the salmon and, and whatnot, um, hopefully grounds the book enough to to, to keep the reader Thinking that I'm, you know, Tolkien or something like that, right? <laughs> right. which is not my intention, and, not, and I'm actually not. I, I'm, I'm not even. I don't read fantasy. I've never even read Tolkien. Um, yeah. I'm not at all a fantasy uh, fan of, of any kind. But it just sort of was the story that that, that evolved. So.
0: Hmm yeah and it's interesting that it almost became more contemporary after he wrote it
1: yeah i know bizarre yeah
0: yeah um in terms of uh, for you, this is your first novel and going from poetry to to uh, novel writing uh what what's been the sort of biggest uh, change in gears that you've had to to make
1: uh it takes a whole lot longer <laughs> it's <laughs> way more work <laughs> um yeah. i i don't um i've tried to write novels throughout my whole i'm thirty five now and i tried. Probably the first time I tried I was 20. I've tried a couple throughout my 20s and then I stopped trying for a while.
0: Why? What 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 was what was happening? Uh, I would always
1: write about six chapters and then I have no idea where the plot was going. Okay. And I didn't have any grounding thread when I was sitting down, I would have lots of characters banging around in my head yeah. and I could get them going but then I didn't know what to how to keep it moving. What the difference with this book is that I had that that basic backstory mythological thing that that, that fishing float from possibly many thousands of years ago mm-hmm. that, were, that pushes the characters through the whole story, you know, yeah. and has a, its own momentum. So then the characters just developed within that, and it, it allowed me to just write the, the characters themselves and not really worry about the plot, because I knew what it was, more or less, when I sat down to write and had known for years before so i'd also been able to develop it more intricately before i sat down to write and develop the characters within that in my imagination before i ever got a chance to sit down and write because i don't have a lot of money so it took me years to even put the five months aside to be able to do it right right
0: right. so so whereas before you were kind of just jumping in because you know for the love of it and That's writing right. it and That's then you right. get to yeah. a point yeah where's this time you had more time to kind of flesh it, it, it out in your and mind. I'm,
1: I'm raising two children and I'm running I'm running the fishing business and I'm, I'm building houses and I'm doing so much other stuff that I just it, it was literally just banging around my head for so many years that by the time I sat down to write it, it took five months to write the first draft and then we probably edited for another four or five months but I was able to just really thrash out that first 350 page draft right correct so with, yeah. with all
0: that you have on the go, do you think you'll ever have a chance to write another book? Uh,
1: I, I will make the chance, <laughs> yeah, right? Um, because I don't—I I love to write, and I—and I—I um, have a lot of, you know, very serious ambitions in that way. But I—I I chose not to take the academic route into uh, having a writing career, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't necessarily give someone more chance um, because people that do the academic thing have to teach a lot of classes and do all that stuff too, right? Yeah. Raise children too, and everything. Um, but it's always a, a, a trick for the, mo- the contemporary writer who hasn't made it to be you know, one of the writers in the country that everyone reads. It's a trick to find the time, right? Yeah. And we have to you know, do that. So I'll, I'll, I don't have a really dominant story bashing around my head just yet. There's a couple things start, starting to happen over the last six months. And I'll wait until that's really ready, and then I'll do it again.
0: And that's Joe Denham talking about a year of broken glass Which uh, is having a a, a launch? It's having a book launch tomorrow, April twenty-eighth, from seven till nine. This is part of a spring book launch uh, from Nightwood Editions and Caitlin Press. Those two are uh, combining to uh, do to to release several books and uh, and do readings. So Joe Denham will be tomorrow at the People's Co-op Bookstore to read from his novel, The Year of Broken Glass. As well, there will be other authors. Kevin McNeely will read from his poetry collection, Embouchure, Embouchure something like that. Adam Bottle will read from his book of poetry, Beautiful Mutants. And Ursula Veira will read from her uh, poetry collection and see what happens, the journey poems. So lots of authors, lots of readings, Check that out tomorrow, April the twenty-eighth, seven until nine p.m. at the People's Co-op Bookstore, which is thirteen ninety-one Commercial Drive. Uh, by the way, uh, Year of Broken Glass is available from Harbour Publishing for twenty-four ninety-five, and you can get uh, you can buy it from harbourpublishing.com. Now, interesting fact about the Year of Broken Glass: We here on the Arts Report will be doing a book review. Ooh, exciting! We haven't done a book review. Uh, ever well, not since not since I've been on the show, and that's about a year. So that's very exciting for us. Uh, Megan Thomas from oh sorry, we did a book review. Megan did a book review like two weeks ago. What the hell am I talking about? A little short memory. Um, but we'll be doing uh, a regular feature. Let's let's highlight that fact. That's new. Uh, book review feature on the Arts Report. So regularly, uh, I think once a month, maybe twice a month. We'll see. Uh, we'll be reviewing books, and we'll be starting this regular feature with the year of. Bro- and glass, and that's happening next Wednesday. So uh, check it out. It's an interesting read. It's um, it's very, it's very gripping because it's um, as we talked about in the interview, it's it's got a lot of modern references. It feels very fresh, you know. It it feels like something you could read in a newspaper. You know, when back in the day when newspapers would print uh, chapters of novels. You know, every a weekly series, every Saturday newspaper, you'd get a new chapter of a novel. That's how uh, *Crime and Punishment* was written, for example. Um, it feels like that. You know, you could you could Read it and feel like this is very current, this is a fresh story. And uh, so, yeah, I'm reading it right now and we'll, we'll talk more about it next week. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll, ter- we'll tell you about Burn and Dodge, a unique dance show that uses uh, Skype to make it come to life. So, stay with us.
2: Liveband.com
0: is Vancouver's community driven concert calendar. New shows are added daily by the city's
3: most active promoters, musicians, and by the driving force of the music scene, the fans. LiveVan.com's listings are different because they are integrated with profiles updated by bands and business owners as they
2: promote upcoming events. Check out the archives to see how closely we've worked within
3: the community to put on the shows you love. Visit LiveMusicVancouver.com for the latest independent and major label event listings. LiveVan.com, Vancouver's community-driven concert calendar.
0: And we're back on the Arts Report. It's Adam here. How do you rehearse a dance show in three cities, thousands of kilometers apart? Why Skype, of course. Choreographer Melanie Kuxdorf is bringing dancers in Vancouver, Winnipeg, and New York City together to explore the themes of space, distance, and disconnection in Burn and Dodge, which, by the way, is a photography technique uh, used to either um, burn a light part of the photograph that's too bright and make it darker, or dodge uh, and cover up a um, cover-up a dark spot in a photo to make it come out a bit lighter uh, anyway the participants in this show share music photos and video in a multimedia dance version of the whispering game Broken Telephone you know, that's the one where you whisper a phrase to one person and then they whisper it to another person and so on and so on until by the time it gets to the last person, the message is completely distorted from the original. So in *Bernard Dodge, rather than try to overcome the problem of rehearsing so far apart, they embraced it. Here's Melanie to explain more.
4: So here in Vancouver, Alana Garakey and Catherine Anderson are my dancers. Mm-hmm. There's two people in Vancouver. They get to work with each other, they get to touch each other. Theirs is pretty playful because they can actually hold on to each other. In Winnipeg, I got um, Allie Robson, my dancer, to use a stand in. So she created her phrases by tracing a body who made the shapes from the photos. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so she, she had a stand in. She had somebody to hold those shapes. Aretha Aoki in New York did not have anybody Mm. so it's all like she's all by herself she's sad and lost so but she had to pretend that there's a person so it's all you know it it, it's so that much harder and it's like an impossible task I'm like asking her to remember somebody that she's never actually gotten to work with kind of interested in that like discomfort too so
0: um yeah to be kind of um Taken out of your comfort zone and kind of uh, shocked into action and yeah. seeing what, what's stirred up in that. And
4: I'm also interested in the audience knowing that, like the audience being part of that. They, like, they know what's going on and it's happening right now. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the whole process of the piece, I really want that to be in the show mm-hmm. so that the audience is not in the dark. Like you see that a lot where.
0: Right, so the audience is so that it's engaged and is involved in sort of your journey as, as artists. Yeah.
4: Well, and and just how we made the piece. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because people always talk about like you see a dance show, especially dance, because in theater there's talking and you get to hear like stories, but in dance there's often just what you see the bodies moving, and then you'll hear about the process and be like, wow, that was really fascinating, but that is not what I saw on stage. Right. And what I saw on stage was not. If I had known
0: that before seeing the dance, I might have appreciated it more.
4: Yeah. Or. Or, you know, it's, like, not connected, maybe, or, like, it's not as... The process sounds better than the end result. (laughs) So, I mean, God knows what's going to happen. Like, I don't know if my piece is going to be any good. I hope it will be, but... um, But what I'm really trying to do is make that process really clear and Hmm. kind of... Like, maybe it's a little postmodern and deconstruction and stuff like that, but, like, (laughs) laying the construction materials out. So, like, the toolbox is open and...
0: Can you give us, like, an example of that?
4: yeah. So, um, I'm going to show video of our Skype rehearsals. So, like, I'll show clips of the rehearsals and clips of us being like, mm, I don't know if that's going to work. Or, like, my my friend in, in Winnipeg, she's got dogs and she's rehearsing in the living room, and the dogs will, like, walk through yeah. while she's trying to rehearse. You right, know, like,
0: and muck things up. Yeah. yeah.
4: So, and, like, start howling at one point, which I think I'm going to use that clip. But, so, yeah, so I'm going to use. The video I've taken video of everything that we've done,
1: mm-hmm.
4: so um, a lot of video. it is a lot of video. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing I've got uh, a big hard drive. drive. <laughs> yeah, so like screen capture of the Skype recording, mm-hmm. and um, and then also the. But I've been rehearsing with dancers in Vancouver as well, so that's a bit different because it's we don't have that disconnection f- through Skype.
0: Right. Like,
4: it is so different to rehearse with somebody via Skype than in the same room.
0: I, I, I imagine so, and. Like, can can it be done? I mean, obviously you're doing it, but tell us about some of that, that difficulty because you're obviously you're not there with the other person.
4: Yeah, it's funny because like, you think I'm in a room, she's in a room. <laughs> We're both in rooms. I can just tell her what to do <laughs> like I would in a normal rehearsal, but it's like, no, like somehow that physical distance, yeah. it's like it's like I feel like I can, if I reach out to touch her, I'm going to hit a force field of glass or yeah, something. Yeah, bubble. You know, and, and that always makes me feel hesitant to... And I feel like they're so... It's really hard for me to describe because, like, I just feel like they're so far away mm-hmm. that even though she can hear me, she can see me, I still feel like I can't totally communicate very yeah. well.
0: Yeah, it's and that liveness that you kind of take for granted in, in a rehearsal. Yeah,
4: I know. It's like, oh, I can't reach out and just manipulate her body or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that right, took a long... time
0: so that's where you have to sort of rely on your words. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. But the way that we're creating the movement in this piece is through photos. Okay. So speaking of like a mode that doesn't really show you what the movement is, mm-hmm. like if you take a picture of somebody moving, you get the still image, but it doesn't show you what they're actually doing. It, it's a frozen moment. It's a clue, but it it's so lacking in in context. Sure. So that's what what we use. Like we, um, I got Aretha in New York to she's my New York dancer Aretha Aoki. Um, to improvise and she sent the photos of her improvising to me uh-huh. and then we created the movement from that mm-hmm. and then took new photos sent that to winnipeg that's how the movement gets created new photos in winnipeg sent to new york uh-huh. and that's how that movement get, so gets that's created. how the
0: the telephone game is sort of um that's yeah. how the data is being transferred mm-hmm. is, is through photographs yeah um,
4: and okay. then for the music it's a clip of one piece of music sent to the next city then they just get that clue and they do a cover or their own interpretation of what they got mm-hmm. and then that composer takes a clip of their new composition sends it to the next city wow. something new is created so like it is kind of, it's my version of Broken Telephone it's like a complicated version of Broken Telephone <laughs> and multimedia version yes yeah so the the music is a lot more is a lot easier to understand and to work with the photos I really had to develop a kind of a process like mm-hmm you could do anything with the photo. Yeah, so, as long like, as
0: it once in a while corresponded to the, the, the physicality yeah, of the photo? Was it's that? like,
4: like what do you choose, you know? So I yeah. had to really limit it. So it's like, okay, we're using the shape, and like, okay. I'm, and I'm really interested in this distance, you know, this huge continent. That's what I was really interested in. It was like, how can you create something between Vancouver, Winnipeg, and New York, like mm-hmm. 2,000, 3,000 kilometers, or whatever it is. and um, And so... I was really interested in the absent body. Yeah. Like what's it like to touch somebody that's it's not gone? Actually there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like can you remember touch? Which we've tried. It's really hard. Like you can you can sort of imagine what somebody might feel like, mm-hmm. but it's really a difficult you sense. You mean just to
0: remember what it is to to have been touched? You know, Bo- somebody both grabs you by the arm to yeah. remember that sensation?
4: Mm-hmm. To be touched and to touch someone. Oh. It's tricky like it's not a sense that like we are really visual and like our memories are often Mm -hmm. look almost like photographs to us or or are influenced by the photographs from our childhood or whatever mm -hmm. but touch itself is like this so wait why was it disappears
0: Why, why was it important to kind of we must remember that sensation
4: um because i'm really interested in in so the way the way we've created the choreography is by tracing each other T- tracing bodies and either the absent body that's in the photo or because I've got two dancers in Vancouver they work with each other mm-hmm. and then they'll the movement is all from tracing so wow. literally like maybe taking a finger and running their hands along a space and then that person is gone and then all is left is that negative space mm-hmm. so it's a really interesting way of moving but I'm constantly saying be precise like re the act of remembering the body is something that I'm really interested in. So Mm -hmm. like it's, it's not just cool pattern in space, but it's like, no, 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 you, you have to
0: like be there. You have to take yourself there. Yeah. And that's Melanie Cuxdorf talking about burn and dodge, which will be coming to chalk exchange, which is a former schoolhouse. That's a sort of uh, venue now. Um, now, a little note before I give you more info on that is uh, Melanie uh, was a regular contributor to the Arts Report um, not too long ago before going off to do uh, choreography duties across the continents, as she seems to be doing now. So uh, we're very happy to see that uh, that Melanie's uh, making art as well as covering it for the Arts Report. So that's, that's awesome. And um, Melanie also wanted me to tell you a, a little bit about the music the musical portion is contributed by Josh Wells and Amber Weber from Black Mountain, who is an awesome band. Uh, let's see if we can hear a little bit of that. Oh, there we go. And so this is the sort of musical inspiration for the show. And I think there's two pieces, two pieces of music in the show. One is slower, and this is the this is the faster one. Oh. Cool. Anyway, so Bernard Dodge is coming to, to the Shock Exchange, and that's 595 Georgia Street, and May 5th, this is happening May 5th at 7pm, tickets are $18 and $13 for members and kids, and if you want to get tickets or just more information on this show, you can go to www.inthehousefestival.com, and um, yeah, check out the show and find out how um, how the Skype... Dancing actually works. I know I'm going. Anyway, we're going to take a uh, quick break now. And uh, when we return, we'll tell you about how uh, 20 or so local lawyers are coming together to make a hilarious comedy. All uh, in fundraising. In the spirit of fundraising. So stay with us.
3: sure how to get involved, CITR is the place for you. We are a volunteer-driven campus and community radio station with a variety of volunteer opportunities. Want to become an on-air programmer? Learn about promotions? Maybe become a news or arts reporter? Come learn about all the ways you can become involved at CITR. Volunteer orientations are held on the first Monday of every month at 6.30 p.m. If the first Monday falls on a statutory holiday, the orientation moves to the second Monday. Visit citr.ca for more information.
0: And we're back on the Arts Report. Uh, Last week's show, we talked about uh, Mambo Italiano. Uh, a coming out story in Montreal that was created in Montreal and is now uh, 10 years, 10 years in the running. And it's playing at the Fire Hall until April the 30th. Check it out. Get, go to firehallartscenter.ca. Uh, another show we had, um, another event we had on last week's Arts Report uh, was Puddle City Arts. And this is a, a group who wants to promote uh, more music, more musicians, more musical artists, and artists of any stripe uh, in Vancouver. And they do it all for free, and we interviewed them last week. They're playing a show tomorrow, April 28th at 6.30 at the Railway Club. So you can get more information on that at puddlecityarts.com so you can find out about tomorrow's show, and you can find out about getting involved with these guys, and, being, um, and they can help you uh, to be out there in you know in cafes and other venues and and get yourself an audience. So check it out That's puddlecityarts.com. Later in today's show we'll tell you about a film called Awake. And that's coming up on Friday. It's going to be at 5th Avenue Cinemas and you'll hear in the inter- in the interview for that one about how in the opinion of the director or or as the director of the film heard from actors Theatre directors can be like cult leaders, and theatre productions can, be, can feel like a cult. What does that mean? We'll find out later in the show. But first, two of Vancouver's finest theatre institutions, Carousel Theatre for Young People and Touchstone Theatre, are doing a unique fundraiser event. Every year, around 20 local lawyers leave the courts and converge on Carousel's rehearsal space to put together a play. It's called The Lawyer Show, and this year's production, its 10th anniversary, actually, is called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, a farce set in ancient Rome. Our support correspondent Nick Sartori spoke with Touchstone Theater's artistic director Katrina Dunn and Carol Higgins from Carousel Theatre. Here's Katrina talking about the origins of this unique show.
5: Well, the lawyer show started not in Vancouver, but it started in Winnipeg. That's where uh, Manitoba Theatre Centre, which is a large regional theatre in Winnipeg, uh, started the first lawyer show that I know of. Theirs is the oldest in Canada and probably the most successful. Uh, and Vancouver, like a number of other cities like Ottawa and Victoria and now Toronto, have all spawned kind of imitations of which of something that was their original event. And it really is a partnership between the legal community and the theatre community, specifically one lead theatre. Uh, and the the concept is that We cast the show entirely of lawyers. It's usually a large cast. Our cast is usually between 20 and 25 people. They rehearse for a number of months uh, until uh, the show is ready and perform it. We do four performances at the Waterfront Theater. Um, And so, yeah, it's a big commitment um, by by the cast. And uh, we've, uh, we've done all kinds of material at The Lawyer Show. We've done murder mysteries, we've done classics, we've done Shakespeare and now we're doing our first musical. Mm-hmm.
2: So working with the, the law community in Vancouver, um, you obviously have a, a close relationship with a lot of different law firms since the cast is so big. how is um, your, How is that relationship?
5: Well, I, I definitely have, I'd say I've worked with over 100 lawyers over the last 10 years, maybe more, actually. Um, and we uh, we have a number of firms that have been really um, loyal sponsors of the show, some of the larger firms in, in Vancouver. Um, they also will bring down tons of people from their firms and it's really about community support, it's about the the legal community coming out to support the people who are performing in the show and by doing that raising money for the theatre companies so it's definitely been a process that's evolved over the years, we've gotten to know them better, they've gotten to know us better and um, it's all led to sort of a um, continuing interest in in creating this event Is there anything
2: else that you want to add?
5: Um well just that you know obviously the Show has a big connection to UBC as well because it's well I'm not sure if it's the main law school in Vancouver but I th- think so. Um, you know, I don't know how SFU and UBC, I don't know how that plays out in the in the <laughs> law schools, but uh, I know that at least half of our cast uh, graduated from UBC Law, so that's a, that's a really big connection to UBC. And we'd love a law, legal students to come out as well, because it's a great way to schmooze and meet people in the community. It's a great way to meet people that you're going to be then articling with later on, and get a sense of who the firms are, and get a sense of... Um, just what the playing field is in a, in a really nice social environment.
2: I also spoke to Carol Higgins, artistic and managing director of Carousel theater. She also co-directed a funny thing happened on the way to the forum with Katrina. I asked Carol why she chose forum for this year's lawyer show.
6: That's really good question. Uh, the show itself is very accessible, which I think is really important with, with an event like The Lawyer Show. Uh, the title, most people have a connection to it of some kind. They may have seen the movie. Uh, of course, the Broadway production was very, very successful. And uh, the most recent revival featuring Nathan Lane uh, won a lot of Tony Awards. So there is a, there is definitely sort of a an easily recognizable factor about the title, which I think is great, uh, is also a fabulous composer, of course, Stephen Sondheim. Uh, Tricky stuff. Uh, We have some fabulous singers in the cast, but the story itself is silly, it's crazy, it's kooky, uh, lots of fun, which I think is really important for an event like this. It's really important that our cast is putting so much volunteer time into it that we've been rehearsing since early February. So we wanted a a production that they would have a lot of fun doing and that our audience is too... Too, would really really enjoy and of course that uh, so many of them uh, their firms and their their colleagues are coming so we wanted it to be a really really fun in event for all involved
2: mm-hmm. and Tell me about how it is for you as a director working with lawyers, some of whom are are actors in their spare time or ex-professional Absolutely. actors, and how that is different from your normal working with <laughs> professional actors on a on a day-to-day basis.
6: Sure. Uh, well, we're very blessed with the Lawyer Show event. That we there's a number of, of lawyers who've been doing it, for, doing this this event with with Carousel and, and with Touchstone Theater for for many years. Some of whom studied, uh, went to the National mm-hmm. Theater school. Some of them actually even did a season or two at the Stratford Festival uh, and several of them were professional actors for for a period of time, which before they decided to uh, give that up for the security of being a lawyer. Uh, There's certainly a lot of parallels between uh lawyers and and theater uh, I have a i have a close friend who's a lawyer and we i was going to theater school while she was going to law school and we used to always kid each other that we were actually both studying the same thing she was just going to be doing it for more money than than I was at the end of the day so there's a lot of a lot of parallels uh we're blessed with a fantastic cast this year we had we also have a lot of newcomers some fabulous musical theater talent uh who uh, just blew me away at the auditions uh, some of them, uh, some of these cast members, uh, in addition to being lawyers, are are great amateur thespians in their own right. Uh, one of our cast members was actually just in the Forbidden Phoenix out of the Gateway Theatre, and uh, several of them are appear, appear in different uh, musical theatre events and productions around town, so that's been really, really exciting. It's been lots of fun. They've brought so many ideas into the rehearsal hall, and we've really just had a great time over the last couple months.
0: And thanks to Nick Sartori for bringing us that that story, Uh, talking to Katrina Dunn and Carol Higgins. And The Lawyer Show, which is a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, is happening at the Waterfront Theatre which is on Granville Island. That'll be from May the 4th until the 7th at 8 p.m. Ticket prices are $75 each, and that includes a $45 tax receipt because this is a fundraiser. You can get more information at touchstonetheatre.com slash show Oh, there's spaces there. So the best thing to do is go to our website, citr.ca, and you can find the correct link uh, right from our page. You can find that um, you can find links to all the events we have on today's show on our website, citr.ca Alright, so we're going to take a little break, but when we return, we'll tell you about another novel. This one's called A Description of the Blazing World and centers around the massive power outage in Toronto in 2003. So stay with us.
2: Wednesday mornings on CITR from 8 to 10 a.m. It's the Suburban Jungle Show with your radio host, DJ Jack Velvet. Thrills, chills, excitement, and music. That's the Suburban Jungle Show, Wednesday mornings from 8 to 10 at 101.9 FM in Vancouver. You can also catch this show, streaming and podcast, at www.jackvelvet.net. Don't miss the Suburban Jungle Show. Wednesdays, 8 to 10, 101.9 FM,
6: CITR.
0: And you're listening to the Arts Report here on CITR, your weekly fix of arts and culture on the radio. Um, I'm Adam, and uh, before we get on with the rest, uh, I have a little quick announcement to make. Artist Rodney Graham has received the Audan Prize for Lifetime Achievement in the Visual Arts um, we're very happy for Vancouver artist Rodney Graham. We uh, featured him on the show, and that's a clever segue to promote uh, our YouTube channel. Yes, the Arts Report is on uh, YouTube, and when we heard that Rodney Graham had won this prestigious uh, award here in British Columbia, um, we put up our interview with him that we aired in February, uh, and we put that up on our YouTube uh youtube page so check us out you can do that just by going to citr.ca and at the bottom of today's post for the arts report it says uh there's a link there's a link to our our facebook our twitter and now our uh youtube page and you can you can hear the interview it's funny you can see our radio interview on youtube yeah it kind of doesn't make sense but it's you know it's an audio and there's some there's some photos um that kind of flash during the interview but um but yeah, it works. I'm telling you, it works. Radio interviews on YouTube, you have to see it to believe it. So, uh, so check that out, and congratulations again to uh, artist Rodney Graham. Now, writer Michael Murphy has written a new novel called A Description of the Blazing World, inspired by perhaps one of the very first science fiction stories ever written in English. In 1666 called The Blazing World. The story involves a boy discovering a copy of that book against the backdrop of Toronto during the massive power outage of 2003. Meanwhile, a lonely man receives a postcard addressed to someone with the same name as him. The two stories intertwine on the subject of coincidence, fate, and the end of the world. I spoke to Michael Murphy, who lives in Halifax, and started by asking him how this book was inspired by the one written in 1666.
3: Mainly, when I first heard about the book, I just heard the title, and the, the title is just A Blazing World or The Blazing World, but the, the, I guess the old-fashioned way of doing things is they called it a description of the new world called The Blazing World, and uh, that title just uh, really stood out to me. I thought it seemed like a really cool title to a book, <laughs> right. and, uh, and so then looking, looking into it more and um, the, the 14-year-old character uh, who finds this, the copy of this book... Um, he's kind of, he's sort of into sci-fi and stuff like that. So it, it made sense for him to find something that was, that would be something that he might be interested in, while mm. at the same time having this sort of uh, historical background to it. So,
0: Now, uh, the book has a lot of uh, signs, premonitions, those kinds of things. Um, do you sort of live your life by uh, those kinds of things?
3: Uh, I don't, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But uh, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people do, and it's—I think it's more how easy it is to—you can take almost anything and, and and interpret it in whatever way you kind of, uh, in whatever way it sort of suits you, and uh, and that's kind of a, sort of one of the I guess one of the themes in, in the book is this idea of um, just interpreting things to death to the point where <laughs> you can basically. Turn it around and around until it until it fits perfectly to exactly what you thought it would mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah. So I guess having these these signs and these little things that and of course in the book, you know, they never really quite prove to mean anything. So uh, yeah, I guess that's part of it.
0: And uh, I wonder why you chose uh, two narratives. Um, what does that that add to the story?
3: Well, I think the the thing that I liked about it um, it, w- it was partly a practical thing because the f- I first started writing the, the narrative that's about Morgan, and that's the, the third-person narrative um, about the guy who um, starts stealing mail from people who have the same name as him. And I was writing that and only that, and it, and it just didn't seem like it was enough to really um, to be a complete novel on its own. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I thought, well, maybe a novella, but I didn't really want to write a novella either. <laughs> right. And so I, I was working on that for a while, and then uh, at the same time working on... This other project, but it was really more of a voice, uh, which is the first-person, uh, 14-year-old kid, and and so they they didn't really seem like they were going to work together. But uh, it, I guess, it kind of clicked one day where I thought, well, I could just kind of do the two of them at the same time, and it and it really works out because in the in the stories themselves, there's a lot of a lot of doubling, a lot of copying, and sort of uh, doppelgangers here and there. So hmm. so it made sense to have uh, to have narratives that were actually doing what. What some of the characters were doing in, in the book too.
0: So and did you find that uh, by combining them, did it, did the sort of did your imagination take off, or was it just sort of uh, sort of cutting and pasting too? <laughs>
2: no, <laughs> too no.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, like when I decided to combine them, there really wasn't much written on either side. Like oh, okay. They were both, yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. Like it, they they were both kind of stifled in their on their own and weren't really going anywhere. But you're right. You know, once once I started thinking of them as as two parts to a whole. It, uh, it definitely made it a lot more um, conducive to, to writing, and, and even, I would write one chapter in, in first person, mm-hmm. and then once that was done, I'd say, okay, now, what happens in the, in the other story, and how does that sort of relate to what's going on in, in what I just wrote, and then it would go back and forth like that, so uh, definitely having the two of them, and, and, and I, I sort of, uh, the first person, at least, is, is a little more uh, humorous, like, still a little bit dark, but kind of a funnier uh, story than the third person, and so I, I did find that those two things complemented each other so it wasn't just sort of a too dark story, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, which one do you do you prefer, the first person or writing in third person, or what, what do you find is, is sort of the biggest difference between them?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I prefer one over the other, it's um, they each have their own strengths, you know, and in the first person you're always kind of in that voice, and so it can be quite limiting, because it, you can't have this character say something, even if even if it sounds nice. You know, it may sound uh, it may sound good, but mm-hmm. if it doesn't make sense for this 14-year-old kid to be saying it, then you can't put it in his mouth. Otherwise, <laughs> it just seems kind of weird. Yeah. And so, but the strengths of of writing in that in that voice is that the things that he can say are pretty can be quite wild. So <laughs> you can get away with a lot because it's it's a character who's talking. It's not it's not a narrator that has to be more responsible. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's not me, it's just the character. Exactly, right? You know, you can kind of, like, sweep it under the rug, whereas with the third person, um, I like it because it's, it's a little more rigid, and it's a little more like you're sort of forced to work with something, you know, you can't just kind of have these flights of fancy that don't work, or you can't call too much attention to the narrator as a person within the narrative, and so that sort of self-effacing kind of writing is also enjoyable because then you're really just focusing on Telling a story, describing a scene, and, and uh, you know, showing uh, the reader
0: what's going on. And that's Michael Murphy telling us about a description of the blazing world. Apologies there for the, the audio. It was a little, a little odd, and I swear it's not me. Often I make uh, screw-ups when I record these interviews, but this time it wasn't me, I tells you. It was the, the radio gods who um, are angry at me this week. Don't ask why. Uh, Anyway, A Description of the Blazing World is out from Broadview Press. It came out on April the 1st, and so it is available now in bookstores. It is $21.95. You can uh, get more information uh, and perhaps even buy it from freehand-books.com. Freehand-books.com. Alrighty, so we're going to take a little break, the last one, I promise, and uh, we'll tell you about this movie called Awake, about a theater director who who dies. (laughs) That's how the movie begins. Uh, Someone is dead, and... uh The company, the theater company, troupe, who worked with him, uh, assembles, comes together for Awake, and uh, secrets and lies and and interpersonal fireworks ensue. And we'll talk to the director and find out how uh, uh, theater production can be kind of like a cult. What does that mean? Stay with us.
1: This just in, Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM presents Cabaret Radio. Join host Teddy Smooth as he explores the chime miracle the hysterical, the phantasmagorical world of burlesque and cabaret. Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM brings you Cabaret Radio.
0: And we're back here on the Arts Report. Speaking of burlesque, the Vancouver International Burlesque Festival is coming to Vancouver May 5th, 6th, and 7th at uh, the Rickshaw and the Vogue. And you can get more information on that at Van Fest, vanburlesquefest.com. And uh, I'm just looking at the website right now. It says Rickshaw tickets soon to be on sale at Red Cat, Zulu, Jean Queen, and East Vanity Parlor. Uh, special raffle prizes, etc., etc. So get check that out. Check out the website. That's VanBurlesqueFest.com, and uh, we'll try to to give you the scoop on that on next week's show. So stay tuned on the Arts Report for that uh, next week, and uh, and lots more features that I'll tell you about later. But first. There's a new film coming to Fifth Avenue Cinemas on Friday called Awake, about a group of actors coming together after the the death of their theater director and the unraveling of their secrets and lies that ensues. The film has been winning awards, including Best Feature Film, at the Carmel Arts and Film Festival in California, no doubt thanks in part to the unique style of the film. Director Penelope... Oh, wow. Give me a second here. Director Penelope Boutenhouse. There we go. There we go. I, I practiced saying her name, and once again, as I often do, I practice so hard with the last name <laughs> that I can't pronounce their first name, which is often like John, or Penelope in this case. Anyway, where was I? Director Penelope Boutenhouse wrote a detailed treatment of the story, but allowed the actors to improvise the entire film with a team of camera operators catching the live action. As you hear, Penelope hopes this film, hopes this makes for more honest performances, but still, but hopes it's still as tight and coherent as a scripted feature. Uh, But first, I asked her, what makes actors a good subject, rather than, say, lawyers or doctors?
7: Well, you know, I don't actually think there's been that many films about actors. I've actually probably seen more films about lawyers than about actors. (laughs) Um... I think it's partly because it's a world I know. I've worked with actors and in film for 30 years. And also I find it kind of intriguing when actors are supposedly not acting but being themselves. So there's that kind of um, tension between are they acting or are they the human?
0: Right, and kind of... who are they underneath the parts that they play? Because I think actors are very comfortable, ironically, uh, being in front of other people, but sort of protected by the character that they play. Exactly. Right. So
7: it's really getting at that vulnerability which lies underneath the actor's facade. And also using, you know, the film is a wake of a theater director. So using sort of the intimacy of a theater troupe, which... um, you know many actors who work in theater have told me they have this sort of almost cultish <laughs> attachment to their directors when they're in this intense process of rehearsing and getting at the truth and real human emotions so i thought that it's very an, an intense environment so when the person who was the lead of that dies then that intensity and also the facing sort of their own mortality when someone close to you dies brings out a lot of truth and that's what i'm interested
0: in interesting, yeah, you say truth a lot and and I want to ask you about the, the style of this film because it's, uh, it seems very tricky because uh, it's sort of it, it depends a lot on improvisation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about um, how that was done
7: well you know one of the reasons I like improvisation is because when you use scripted material, everybody knows their lines and there's a kind of uh lack of spontaneity and uh unexpectability in it so when you're improvising actors are actually reacting live and in order to do that um you needed like two cameras shooting simultaneously in both directions so I had a DOP that knew how to pre-light and hang lights and lights so that we could shoot in all directions and and get that real emotion and interaction that's happening in the moment but it also, you know, we blocked the scene so that the actors didn't do crazy different <laughs> actions every time so we could cut different takes together. So it wasn't right,
0: so it had a sort of rough structure.
7: Oh, yeah, I had a 30-page treatment yeah. with a little description of what happens in each scene, and I spent a lot of time with the actors talking about their characters, and they, we all got together to understand their back relationships and stuff. So there was a lot of prep work before we actually went to camera.
0: Hmm. And so, and so, did the the camera, the cameras had to be sort of always, always ready, always catching things, always. Yeah,
7: they were both. Most of them were handheld, except for some of the big dinner scenes. So, both. Uh-huh. I got. Luckily, I shot in January in Ontario when when there's not much work, so I got some of the best camera operators there are. Mm-hmm. And so they could just be, you know, really flexible, be really good at handheld work and flexible at catching you know, every movement, or, and changing sizes in every take, so we had lots of different um, kinds of images, not just the same thing over and over again.
0: I wonder what happened by by the end of the filming, because, you know, if you had a, a treatment, you had a, an idea of what's happening and, and how things should progress, but then you have the actors doing th- improvising and doing what feels natural and, and making their own discoveries, and I wonder, how, how did the project change uh, after you filmed
7: it? Well, you know, it, I think one of the biggest things, is, as you mentioned in the beginning, is it's a film about people holding on to their secrets and their shame and their um, disappointment. So um, I think one of the biggest things we realized as we went along that you understand audiences understand more than we know, and it was actually a question of holding back more than we had actually written. Right. And the problem with improv is that people tend to talk a lot, and in rea- reality, I think we hold, we don't our cards that much we're not that straightforward about our deep feelings so mm-hmm. it was trying to get that reality so yeah it changed in terms of uh revelations and what happened and of course in improv there's always surprises and accidents and things you don't anticipate that are brilliant which is what i love about it the unexpected that when everybody's going that they, 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 they come up with this brilliant material so in terms of changes i think it was more about how we revealed each themselves mm-hmm. than actual changing the, the, the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Sort of the, the journey may have, journey, may have changed, yeah. but the destination was the same. Exactly. Interesting. Would you want to work in this style again?
7: You know, I love this style, and part of it is because I'm a very sensitive person to films that feel false and scripted and unnatural. And that's part of the reason that I went to improv. And the tricky part is funders, because you don't have this real script are very nervous about what the outcome is going to be. <laughs> they can't really imagine. And the only reason they funded me was because I had done this series called Train 48, which was an improv show that went to air the same day we shot it. Right. So I had done like 100 episodes and knew how to do it. So they had confidence that I knew how to do it. But it was also not a big-budget film, so there wasn't a huge amount of stake. Um, <laughs> I think if I wanted to do a bigger budget in improv, it would be more of a challenge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you'd want you'd want to mention?
7: Well, you know, I think people think that improv is about rambling, talking, and this is actually a really tight story with lots of intrigue and twists and turns, and audiences, when the credit comes up at the end and it says the dialogue was entirely improvised, a lot of people gasp in surprise (laughs) because they find it very, you know, very, doesn't feel like a random blah, blah, blah kind of thing. So I think audiences, uh, you know, I won a prize when Clint Eastwood gave me the award at the carmel film festival i just won the mexico international film festival so i think it's a film that improv has improved it rather than made it clunky Hmm. because i I think there's some certain people that assume that it's going to be kind of kind of messy and raw and Mm -hmm. it's actually very tight and and full of intrigue
0: And that's director Penelope Boutenhouse telling us about Awake, coming to the Fifth Avenue Cinemas April 29th until May the 5th. And if you want more information on the film, you can even watch a trailer for it. Uh, Do that on Facebook. Just type in uh, Awake. a space wake into uh, the search on Facebook and it'll be it'll pop up as a page and you can check that out you can also get a link from that from our Facebook page so if you type in arts report into the search bar you'll get that so check it out well we're nearing the very end the twilight of the arts report and um, I want to tell you about something that we're working on in the next little while and uh, that's Doxa we are putting together our content for the documentary film festival. It's a it's a huge annual thing in Vancouver. It's a it's a lovely event with tons of very interesting films that are based on real life. That's coming May sixth until the fifteenth. So in just a matter of no time at all, and the opening film on Friday May sixth at 7 p.m. at the Vogue is called Louder Than a Bomb, and it's about uh, a, a high school slam poetry competition and it's they showed a promo for it to to media types like me and um i was i was quite blown away it's going to be a, a great bang to to open up the festival so check check out their website it's doxafestival.ca and it'll give you a full lineup of films from friday may 6th until sunday may the 15th and on the website you can get Uh, trailers for a variety of the films and of course buy tickets you can buy tickets to that so we've got here at citr uh, a bunch of of what do you call them um screeners you know copies of some of these films so we at the arts report team are going to try to um watch these films and uh give you a heads up on what is what what to watch what to watch. So, and we've got some interviews with filmmakers coming up in the next few weeks. So check that out. Also on next week's show, uh, we're going to have love stories. That is a play that's, uh, that's coming up in a little while. And, um, it's a collection of, uh, short stories all wound together into a full play. And, um, we talked to, uh, an actor in the show, Britt McLeod. And this show happens just to be directed by, uh, a frequent guest on the Arts Report, uh, Brian Cochran, um, who was a, a master's directing student at UBC and is now out in the real world trying to survive in the frigid landscape of theatre in Vancouver. So that's his first production out of school, and uh, we're very interested to see what uh, what he's got cooked up so That's going to be great. And of course, as I said earlier in today's broadcast, we're going to do a book review, a regular books feature on the Arts Report, and uh, we're going to review The Year of Broken Glass, which uh, if you missed the interview, um, you can find out more about on our website, citr.ca, and and in an hour or so, if you missed uh, the first few features on today's Arts Report, you can get the podcast and hear about The Year of Broken Glass and uh, all the other good stuff we had on today's show. So uh, that brings us to the, uh, to the end of the show. Um, what can I tell you? Uh, follow us on, on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, uh, and, and read our blog. Oh, you can do all that at citr.ca. We'll be back next week. Discorder Radio is next. Bye-bye.